Welcome, everybody, to Secret Sauce, the show where we hear real-time insights from industry leaders. I'm Carly Ayakono. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Adam Ifshin, the CEO of DLC Management. Adam, welcome to the show. Great to see you. How are you today? Well, thank you. I finally, I finally get to steal Chris Russ's spot, so I'm excited. Just for today. Just for today. Not permanently. Don't get too excited over there. I mean, I know you're the CEO and all, and you call the shots, fine, fine, but he's pretty ingrained. But no, we're thrilled to have you today to learn more about DLC as a company and um, your investment initiatives. I think you have a lot of really great stuff to share. So, so happy you could be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. You know, it's in such an exciting time in our industry coming off of, you know, what is now a, a, another positive, you know, ICSC Las Vegas. I uh, remember the dark years going when you would come back and it would not be so positive. But I think, you know, at least here at DLC, we're extremely pumped up about what both the immediate and midterm future holds for us as a team. It's a really exciting time for retail. Not so much in capital markets, but that's a different story. But retail as a whole, strength of the tenants, real estate fundamentals, there's just so much positive energy. I agree. Yeah, no, we have the advantage of having such a large portfolio and doing so many different things where retailers and their physical presence space interconnect and collide that we have so much data around this that we can be um, as highly convicted as we've ever been about the strength of the open air retail space. So much so that we just put out a research piece, which I know you have called the breath of open air um, that continues uh, to make our case that the open air shopping center represents the uh, emerging new great investment class in all of CRE. And, you know, when you have a portfolio that's north of 16 and a half million square feet and growing, I, I think it gives us the ability to back that up with an intense amount of data in real time. And uh, this year's ICSC was no exception. Um, the, I sat in a, a very brief debrief uh, meeting yesterday where they just gave me the highlights and, and quite candidly, the tenant demand, tenant demand from large impactful tenants is, is as strong as it's ever been. And I've been doing this 32 years since I founded the company. Incredible. We keep going back to the statistic that vacancy is the lowest it's been since 2005 when CBRE started tracking the metrics. So maybe even longer than that, but that's the data set we have. It's just incredible. The tenant demand lack of construction, lack of new supply is really just making amazing real estate fundamentals, which you are obviously benefiting from, which is great. Um, I do want to dig into your investment thesis a little more, but let's back up just a step for our listeners who aren't familiar with DLC. Obviously, you mentioned you have a, a very significant portfolio of open air retail. Why don't you just give us a quick background on the company before we move forward? So DLC is one of the largest privately held owners of open air shopping center in all of the United States. Uh, we operate about half the country, six regional offices spread out from here in uh, bucolic Westchester County behind me, north of New York City to Chicago, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Dallas, Texas um, and Buffalo, New York. Uh, we own somewhere between 16 and a half and 17 and a half million square feet all open air, about 69% uh, grocery anchored and about 85% in total with a grocery component if you add in the various wholesale clubs, shadow, Walmarts, et cetera. 
that also dot through the portfolio. Um, we are a privately held entrepreneurial business. I founded the business 32 years ago myself uh, with no properties, no money, and no people. Uh, we grow organically from the inside. Uh, we have been a serial acquirer of underperforming and underutilized open air retail throughout my career. We're currently 130 professionals in total. Um, and we are completely horizontally integrated. So we do almost everything having to do with adding value to the intersection between a retailer and their physical presence, real estate. Uh, we do in-house uh, leasing, property management, construction management, legal, accounting, et cetera, all the typical food groups. And in addition, we have two adjacent businesses. Uh, we have a very large uh, captive internal general contractor. And we have recently acquired uh, a 15 person architecture firm. Uh, so we continue to build out an ecosystem, well, what I refer to as an ecosystem of human capital that is expert at unlocking the value in, uh, in open air real estate. What an amazing business model and congratulations on taking the company from a thought to what it is today, right? Really extremely impressive. And the fact that you continue to evolve and add these tangential business lines, which obviously directly impact the success of your core assets is, is brilliant and not easy to do to manage all those different business lines. So great job. You know, I don't, I, I don't profess to try and do it myself. I mean, I certainly, I would consider myself an active CEO and a strategist and a risk manager. But one of the things that we've spent three decades doing here at DLC is building a world-class team. Uh, and I think it's really important to understand the, the one thing I think that truly separates us from other operators is we are a people first organization, not an asset first organization. Um, I am a believer that if you have the right people and you motivate them and you build a great culture for them to thrive in, that's how you add value to real estate and, and probably quite candidly, Carly, to almost any business. I think that applies pretty broadly. Uh, you know, you can make a lot of money if you get lucky and get a great asset or build a great asset. Um, but if you want to do it over and over and over again, I think it's really a people driven phenomenon. I absolutely agree with you. Success is only replicatable with people. You will see investors, you'll see clients, you'll see businesses get lucky here or there that don't have systems, but the ones that have the growth that you've enjoyed and uh, appreciated is really because of people that they have around them. Thank you for sharing that strategy. You're welcome. Why don't we go to your overall investment thesis? Now, this the floor is yours to tell us all of the wonderful things about open air retail. I'm gonna be an easy sell here because I absolutely love it already, but for everybody else listening, tell us why you're so bullish on it and what your investment thesis is overall. So, um, so our investment thesis comes from what I just explained to you. It starts with people. They become a platform, a band, a band of a team, if you will, that's expert in collaborating together to do sometimes fairly complicated and intricate things all in open air retail. And then of course, those two things together lead to performance. Now, why is it a particularly good time to have the type of platform that DLC has and to, to unleash it upon the open air uh, retail real estate world is that we are looking at right now a massive confluence of events, all of which are driving the consumer <clears throat> and the retailers that seek to serve those consumers 
to the open air space, right? And I'll highlight three of them um, in particular. One is obviously a massive shift in focus from urban to suburban in a post-COVID environment. So that's one. The second is um, an ongoing uh, generational structural shift in how the consumer wants to shop from being, uh, from allocating an overwhelming majority of their shopping dollars from malls to open air, much more accessible, safer, faster, convenient options. And then the third one is a, is a current phenomenon that I think is just putting some fuel, some jet fuel on an already raging fire, which is uh, the nation, the nature of the economy at the moment, if you are a consumer on a budget is driving you from being aspirational, which has historically been uh, a combination of experiences, urban shopping and mall based shopping uh, to value and essential shopping, which is dominated by the open airspace. And then I think there's one other structural shift that's largely gone uh, underappreciated, uh, both inside our business and in the broader uh, business world in general, which is that there is no question in our mind that the open air based shopping center for retailers is now the most efficient way at the fairest possible price to do last mile fulfillment and returns the two of which just destroy the e-commerce model and render it completely unprofitable ever. And if you look at the phenomenon that has grown up in the last three, four years, which is that those retailers who have learned how to make money in spite of 30 plus percent returns and free shipping in both directions are ones <clears throat> who have driven the customer back to do some of the work of getting the good. Right. And that's most commonly buy online, pick up and store or both us. And we regularly now make deals with retailers who say, you're going to see a different floor plan than you've seen before. You're going to see a different strategy about the store because the store has to play double duty in our business model. Right. And it's the tip of the spear in the last mile fulfillment. And it's the place where the consumer gets to know us and we acquire the consumer. So there are a variety of things, all of which are conspiring in a favorable manner right now for open air retail. And that's why we're so bullish that we have the team and the platform to exploit that opportunity. So you touched on several different angles there, which are coming together in this confluence of factors that make it this incredible time in retail. You mentioned that the consumer is shifting to the suburbs. You mentioned that it works better for the retail and obviously your platform is perfectly positioned to capitalize on this. Let's take a moment and, and look at each of those a little more granularly. So on the, the population shift with hybrid work, with you know all the changes we've experienced in the last few years, are you now exploring different markets that you wouldn't have been exploring before, maybe more secondary, more tertiary even, or is it your same markets, just different asset positioning that you're favoring within those markets? How's your perspective changed on location? So the answer is it's both, blessedly. Um, we were aware because we operate in a significant number of secondary and tertiary markets and have for a long time. Um, I started buying assets, for example, in tertiary markets with large colleges and universities in them back in 2001. I've been a big believer in certain select types of tertiary markets for a long time to make outsized performance for similar credit risk 
similar execution risk as you would in a core market or a secondary market. And we have had extraordinary success in both core and secondary markets. Some of our best deals have come in places like the Columbus, Ohio's of the world, first, which I think is a great secondary market as an example. And some of our best home runs have come in tertiary markets like Buffalo, like, uh, like a Fayetteville, Arkansas, as another example. So we saw a trend there long before COVID. Um, we saw that retailers were learning that the white space that was left for them to, count, to, to really exploit were those tertiary markets. And lo and behold, they were finding that they were doing volumes in those tertiary markets that were not that far off of their core market numbers. Uh, and that they could at a minimum do chain average volumes and pay below chain average rents in those markets. So that was coming already. We saw that from people like Five Below, Alta, and Ross as examples. Um, not just them, but they, I think, are three very good examples of groups that were already come, coming to those markets. Uh, there is no question that, that the, the combination of COVID, but more so the long-term demographic trends in employment in America have pushed uh, you know, it's no longer about COVID. What it's really about is commuting and childcare. And I think this is the real long-term structural shift when you talk about percentage of dollars that a consumer spends in an urban setting versus a suburban or a tertiary setting. And these are the two, to me, the two big drivers are, are commuting and, and childcare. Uh, so we'll take them in turn. As it relates to commuting, let's, let's just be very honest. Consumers don't want to commute. Right. They learned in COVID they don't have to. And because the unemployment rate is in the mid threes in this country, but in many of the top markets, it's really in the twos and the low twos. And because the demographic trend, and I can actually speak to this because we're on my thesis in economic demography 35 years ago, is that we're having fewer and fewer babies in America. The number of 22 year olds coming out of college every year in America is starting to go like this. And it's going to keep going that way for the next 20 years. And immigration. Uh, it's been highly restricted in the United States really since probably the late 2000s. Um, all those things are conspiring to change fundamentally the dynamic between labor and management. So management is going, you got to come back to the office. You got to come back to the office. You got to make them. Well, for the record, I'm not saying that, but most CEOs are. And the reality is, is that because of the commute and because of the, the difficulties of commuting and childcare, the consumer doesn't want to go back to the office. Well, guess what? Labor has the, the dynamic now is that labor has a lot more leverage versus management for white collar jobs than it used to. And as a result, they're saying, hey, 80, 83% of people in America will not apply to a job on Indeed.com unless there's a hybrid work option. 83%. So that is causing this dramatic shift of people, at least not every day, like hybrid, right? I think it's, the world ultimately ends up hybrid, not remote. I think there's a difference. So people don't want to fight that commute. And what they're doing is they're making up for at least some of the productivity loss of not being up in the office by taking some of that commuting time and giving it back to their employer. Right. The so other I don't one, want to get too deep into, into office, but, but I have one quick follow-up question before you continue. Are you suggesting that people are going to be in an office less or that the office needs to move as well as retail to the suburbs to meet the consumer? And again, well, I, think, I don't I want to get too off track, but I think it's I think it's far more the former than the latter. Okay. I think the react and we're you, you, like look, I'm I'm a student of the game, so I see I see the data in office as well, right? All you need to look at is the size of renewals 
right? So if someone was in 150,000 feet, they're renewing for 75,000 feet, they're saying they're going basically to a hot desk kind of setup and they're going to hybrid. There are some people who need to come in every day, they'll come in every day, but by and large, it's gonna be much more fluid. Like, look, we never, we never had everybody in the office any day, every day anyway, right? I mean, look, you grew up in the brokerage business, Carly, you know this as well as anybody, right? Leasing reps don't make money sitting at their desk. And the companies they work for, right, don't leave space by them sitting at their desks, right? right. Time, time at properties, time in market matters. Same right. thing for construction managers, project managers, property managers. We never had we never had a full office here every day unless we were throwing a party. And we like to throw parties so people would come in and we, we enjoy seeing them, don't get me wrong. But we were always sort of a little bit hybrid-y and now we're just more hybrid. Um, okay, so hybrid's the model that works. We've right. established that, we've agreed on that. What does that mean for retail? You said the tenants are enjoying these lower rents in the suburbs. Are we moving retail closer to the consumer? Are you seeing more focus on smaller centers, smaller footprints? What's the translation here? Well, so the smaller footprint thing I'll come to in a minute because that, that trend has actually stopped and we're seeing it reverse the other way. And I think that's all about last mile fulfillment. We'll come to that in a second. What we're seeing is retailers come in and do two things. They're saying, wait a minute. I passed up a bunch of secondary and tertiary markets. I, I, I got to go get those. I got to access that consumer where that consumer is. That's number one. The other one is we're seeing retailers go, wow, my volume and my foot traffic in, you know, a decent market where you are in northern New Jersey is up 30, 40 percent versus 2019. Store can't handle it. Store can't handle it. So now what I need to do is I used to put my stores three miles apart or five miles apart. Maybe my stores need to be two miles apart now. And maybe they can be a little smaller, but my customer is losing that A-level customer service experience because the TJ Maxx that did 12 million pre-COVID is now doing a 17, 18 million. And it really wasn't designed to do that. So maybe I got to slip another store in here between two stores. And we're seeing this a lot in F&B a ton in F&B. Hmm. I mean, we're, we're, I can't say where, we're working on some deals for some of our preferred development F&B clients in our redevelopment single tenant standalone business, where they're gonna go across the street from each other. That's amazing. That across the street from across each the other. Street. The volume mm -hmm. is so, so intense. Okay. Can't be, the one store can't handle it. It's just not possible. So wow. that's one. The whole thing about store size shrinking has absolutely stopped and it's with a handful of exceptions. Okay. Uh, Burlington being the most obvious exception because they were operating in these sort of 80 to 120,000 foot boxes. They continue to drive their store down to the size they want it to be long-term. But by and large, the shrinking of the store footprint with the exception of very remote tertiary markets has stopped. Why? The reason is because people need bigger stock rooms than they used to, A, because they got taught a tough lesson on supply chain coming out of COVID. And the second one is they're now doing much more of their last mile fulfillment from the store than they are from some robotic pick and pack center, because that's too expensive. So are your stores dividing differently between front end consumer facing square footage and distribution in the back? Are you seeing more square footage overall, but a, a sort of divide down the middle. You're of not growing all uh, overall. You're seeing you're seeing a, a fine tuning. If okay. You mean, okay. Right? You're seeing a fine tuning. You're seeing 
changing where where customers load. You're seeing dedicated parking. You're seeing you're going to see. It's not really here yet, but you're going to see from some retailers almost like the pickup drive-through. It may not be exactly a drive-through, but a pickup operation separate and distinct from a go-in-the-store operation. This is absolutely coming, particularly in uh, suburban markets where there's room and without question in tertiary markets, without question. Um, look, this is, you know, look, if you're, if you're a retailer, in many instances, that retail space in a secondary or tertiary market may cost less than the, than the industrial space. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Right. Industrial rents where you are. Right. No, they're crazy. I think of all these drive-throughs that we have now and how difficult they are to get from a, a zoning and approval perspective. So thinking that now every tenant is going to want a drive-through for pickup of goods seems like a logistics nightmare from a flow of traffic around the site, but I guess we're going to have to get creative on how to accommodate that. Yeah, I would say that there's no question that in many municipalities, it's the, the retailer probably will not be able to attain what their ops team and their design team draw back at headquarters. There's no question. Right. right. <clears throat> Certainly, um, not only local municipalities, but state DOTs are starting to take a much different view of the traffic that a drive-through creates versus the same amount of retail square footage without the drive-through. And it's a challenge. It's, we're doing half a dozen sites for one high volume single tenant standalone in New Jersey right now. And that is the scope and nature of the drive-through and the traffic it generates is, is on the table in every one of those deals. Right. Yeah. That'll be a, a challenge to accommodate, but I can see from the retailer's perspective, how of course they want that and the consumers want it. So it just becomes a, a planning and landlord creativity issue at that point. So what, let's shift a bit and talk to me about tenants that you are excited about. You know, we know all the big names, which it, many you have in your portfolio, the discounters, TJ Maxx of the world, which you already mentioned. What do you think about some of these newer concepts, the entertainment, the med tail, how are they going to fit in and <coughs> vacancy levels where they are now? Where are they going to go? How do they find space? So it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, some of my retailer friends and partners may not like this very much. The answer is, you know, the rent's got to go up, right? The combination of construction costs and supply and demand metrics in most mar markets, rents have not stopped going up and they are going to go up, I, I think, quite significantly moving forward here. Um, so interesting concepts that I think are complementary to existing open air retail dominant chains already. Um, I'm not worried about Medtail figuring it out. Um, okay. The model there, the the model there is such that there is still room to run for them to pay more rent in a retail setting and still accomplish efficiencies and other cost reductions that make it a better uh, better in their business model than someone right. actually going to a hospital. Right. Or having to commute to an urban doctor's office type setting. So I think there's more room to run there. I think the the, the city MD classic um, 
the classic, you know, urgent care model is probably saturated. I think we'll see right. a rationalization and a consolidation in that space along the same lines that we saw for hospitals and, and healthcare systems, but that's here to stay. Uh, in, a, in a different part of the med health space, which I find absolutely fascinating, is the vet business. Oh. Is the next great is the next great high rent paying tenant mm -hmm. in open air, and I thought this was all about you know like Joe Vet is in a seventy year old single tenant commercially zoned house and it's falling down and they need to get out. And we've done a ton of four to six seven thousand square foot vet deals. Mm -hmm. We are about to open a twenty five thousand square foot wow. veterinary facility in a power center in Frederick, Maryland. Wow, more of a hospital, urgent care, veterinary. If you think about, if you think about in Medtail, right? There's the three to five thousand square foot urgent care, dental kind of model, right? The classic model. Mm -hmm. But there's also this twenty-five to fifty thousand square foot ambulatory, wellness, urgent care, peds, ENT, consolidated right. model, and we've built four or five of those. This is vet for that. I love it. How are you handling the TI? I would imagine the bill um, is certainly so the, this is a this is a this is a risk management credit challenge for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we happened to get approached by a group that had a combination of PE backing and uh, some vets who happened to be rolling up veterinary practices who in and of themselves had significant financial wherewithal and they were willing to personally guarantee the lease. Great. Um, they were very open book with us about how much they were going to spend. And we agreed to give them a big TI number, but it was in the nature, in the scope of what they're doing, a fairly modest percentage of their overall commitment. I think, I think this is, by the way, I'm not a pet owner. I'm not a pet person. Okay. Um, but the reality is, is that the world loves their pets. And I think this is going to be a game changer. So that, that's one. Okay. Um, I'll tell you the other thing I'm really excited about. I'm excited about retailers, some of the retailers who are coming out of malls have a very different approach and concern about level of design, no knock on the historical open air tenants. But I love bringing groups like Bath and Body Works and Foot Locker, who are the two we've done the most with, because they bring a level of design and a willingness to tinker and try and new. I also love what Dollar General is doing with Pop Shelf. Oh, Pop Shelf is love it, love it, love it. I mean, we built one of the very first stores that they did in our flagship asset, the Village at Allen in Allen, Texas. And I, I cannot tell you how good the store feels and how inviting it is for uh for her and i think it's a i think it's so you know it's i guess it's kind of like commonplace to say well i'm excited about pop shelf because you know it's dollar general they're gonna open a gazillion stores because that's what they do but i will tell you the thought and care they've put into the design the quality of the people they're hiring thus far to run those stores i've been very impressed how do you feel about local tenants? We've given a lot of love to our nationals, which of course are the stability in most of our assets. But do you think there's a place, or let me rephrase that, a need to bring 
some local mom and pop tenants to bring character or flavor to a center? Or is that kind of the old method and we're getting by with the creative build outs of some of our more mainstream national tenants? How do we keep life in the centers? So I, I do think that um, I've always been a fan and I've always been highly supportive of us making local tenant deals. Um, in many instances, as I've found those deals to be game changing if you get the right tenant. What I always tell and teach our, um, our leasing reps is you have to become a student of their business first. You have to believe in their business. You have to be able to look and vet their business model as if you were going to be an investor. And you have to look at their credit as if you were going to lend them money on their home or their car. So it's a lot of work to do a good local deal. The, the local deals that we get behind the most are ones where a leasing rep comes in and goes, you have to come eat lunch with me here. You have to come buy your wife's experience this. in this store. Right. You have to experience being sold by this store owner. Right. Um, and we do that work. We dig in and we do that work because that's the differentiation. If you want what the best of the local tenants bring that you sort of, uh, you know, said, Hey, don't we want this in our centers? And the answer is of course we do, but you have to find that. Right. Right. Somebody who's transitioning from X, Y, Z, you know, white collar desk job and is going to open up, you know, what's their, what's their knowledge base to, to, to do that. What's their, and, and, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like hiring someone to come on your team, right? Like, what's your grit? What's your work ethic? How committed are you? Um, we very famously here have a, have a, a, a senior vice president of leasing who um, in the interview process thought that his interview hadn't gone so well. And he was interviewing at the time for very, you know, sort of entry levelish position. And he, he sent Chris um, a burnt model boat in a FedEx package. Okay. And he said, I'm burning the boats. I'm all in from the line from Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm all in, okay. right? I'm yeah. all in for this. I'm prepared to burn the boat and cast away my package. And I think you need to look at that sometimes with, with, uh, with local retailers. We're very fortunate. We have a lot of them um, that have been in centers we've owned forever. Um, the best pancakes in Chicago are made in the crotch corner of a center I bought into in 1999. Um, you know, they're, they're out there. You just got to find them. Sounds like a lot more work, but very worth it when you can drill down and find the right ones. Good approach. What is your biggest challenge you're facing in your business right now? And how are you overcoming that? So I would say there are two. One is going to sound like you've heard it from everybody else. Um, construction costs um, and in concert with construction costs, the overall time it takes to make a deal. Right. I think just as much as rents are going to go up, I think smart landlords who have some leverage because of supply demand metrics are going to say, hey, look, we got to do this faster. Right. I can't quote you a rent last October and have you sign the lease this July. My construction budget is completely shot. Right. Mm -hmm. We're going to start retrading the deal before we ever get to the end. And nobody wants to do that. Most right. of all, I don't want to do that. So I think that the construction challenges are abating to some extent. But as my economics 101 professor taught me, prices and wages are sticky downward, Adam meaning that 
just because the cost of lumber is down 80% from its high, that doesn't mean that the two by four, when the small contractor goes to build out a 3,000 footer, that the two by four is any less, because not. Right. It's a little less, but it did, you didn't get it all back. Right. And Labor is very, very, remains very, very tight in the construction market. That's one. The other one, and I think this it applies to our business. I don't know if it applies to everybody else's, in all honesty, partly is because we are growing, because we are entrepreneurial and perpetually on offense, we never stop looking for great people and for the next great person or people to join our team. Um, as I mentioned, we have this general contract, and we started it in the fall of 2020 in the middle of COVID. It's going to do $30 million in business this year. Nice uh, we do 40 next year. Mm -hmm. um, we are constantly in the market for high quality talent. For people, we don't hire employees. We invite people, usually free agents. We either draft rookies or we invite free agents to join our team. And so we're selective on a lot of levels. Uh, we want to build, as I say, we want to maintain and continue to build out a world-class team. But I would say to you that the, the never ending part of our business, it's always a challenge, no matter how good or bad the business is going at any given moment, is perpetually sourcing enough great talent to continue, excuse me, the growth that we're fortunate between our reputation, our brand and our access to capital continues. You know, you mentioned the capital markets earlier, I'll close with this. Um, you know, most people are quote unquote on the sidelines. We're closing a $50 million grocery anchor deal, fully financed uh, in two weeks. Congratulations. Um, Very exciting. Thank you. And we are, um, we are under, you know, we're under commitment and we're in the process of going through our diligence on about another $150 million worth of assets. Um, and we have, we have capital to deploy. Um, we are very fortunate. Our book is we sold heavily in 2022 and early 23. Between January 1, 2022 and the end of the first quarter of 2023, we sold about $275 million worth of completed and stabilized assets. Um, so we, we are very well positioned. We've refinanced all of our debt maturities for 2023 with the exception of two small ones that are due at the end of the year. So we are very much on offense. And one of the things that DLC has always done is it has always grown faster in times like this than in quote unquote good times or easier times in the capital markets. We're pretty inventive and opportunistic deal makers. And as a result, um, it's times like this that we grow the most. So continually finding people to help us grow across all of our disciplines remains always job one. I love the optimistic perspective on the rest of 2023 and into 24. It sounds like you're perfectly positioned to capitalize on opportunities, whereas some other companies may not be. So fantastic foresight, right? Getting your team together and getting all these different vertical integrations up and running at a time when there are many challenges in the market. I'm sure it will be an exciting next 12 months for you as you capitalize on that. Right, and if people want to know more about, you know, what you and I have talked about here, um, our thought piece or white paper, it's called The Breath of Open Air. Uh, it came out right for ICSC Las Vegas last month. It's downloadable on our website, dlcmgmt.com. We'll share the link as well and make sure yeah, everyone has it put in the show notes. Thank you so much. And, you know, we're, oh, we want to hear people's feedback about it. So, I, Carly, I've told you, well, Chris, your feedback, uh, but we want to encourage everybody to give us their feedback about it.
No, it's great. I have read it. I went through it. It's really good data and information. So as I mentioned, we'll make sure everyone listening has access to it, no matter what platform you are watching or listening to this interview on. It will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Adam and his team, reach out to myself, and we'll make sure you get all the information that you need because it really is great, great industry data. So happy you put it together and thank you for sharing it with everyone. You're welcome. Excellent insight, wonderful information, Adam. We're so pleased you could join us to run through the white paper, but so much more than that. The, the future and the plans of DLC were fascinating. So we're happy we could uh, share that with you today. And everyone listening, that was Secret Sauce. Thank you very much for tuning in and we will see you again very soon. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.